Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Bohane. On today's program, we're discussing the latest IPCC report, which has just been released, and what it means for policymakers across the Pacific. To discuss the report, we're welcoming back Professor Mark Howden, Director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster here at the ANU in Canberra. Mark is one of the world's leading climate scientists, and today he's joined by Ofa Maasi Kasami, who's beaming in from Samoa. Ofa is currently the manager of the Pacific Climate Change Centre at SPREP, the Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environment Program, which is headquartered in Samoa. Welcome to you both. Professor Howden, we might start with you. On our podcast last year, we discussed two IPCC reports as they outlined the raw science of climate change and the dangers we face moving beyond a 1.5 degree temperature rise. How is the report just released different from those previous ones? Is it more geared towards actual policy recommendations? Yeah, so this report deals with the impacts, adaptation and vulnerability aspects of climate change, whereas the previous report dealt with the climate change science aspects. So this takes that those climate changes and trans- says, well, what are the changes that we're observing now? So how are the changes that have already happened impacting on systems that we value? And then it says, okay, well, what might be the future impact? So if climate change continues under different greenhouse emission scenarios, what might happen under those circumstances, and then what are the adaptations, the responses that we can have that takes the sting out of the tail of some of the negative impacts and possibly uh, accelerate some of the benefits so we actually have uh, good things coming out of it. And so it's that balanced view uh, which we're trying to communicate in this report. Okay. And what's your particular take on, on this report? What, were the, what are some of the highlights, if you like? Oh, the evidence for uh, climate change impacts is growing. It's it's now essentially incontrovertible. It's uh, it covers every continent, every system uh, that we have on Earth, and uh, and those impacts are growing. Uh, they, in many parts of the world, are negative rather than being positive. And so, on balance, oh, we're seeing climate change being being quite a, a negative uh, thing. Uh, the sort of projections of climate change impacts are firming up in terms of what it might mean for things like fisheries or for ecosystems. And again, uh, particularly in the Australia and Pacific regions, those impacts are largely negative. And the other part, which is the adaptation responses, um, the analyses in this report show that there's a lot more adaptation, climate change adaptation happening globally. Uh, there is uh, some assessment of the effectiveness and the learning we've got, which is again quite positive, but overall uh, we're not adapting at the rate that we need to to deal with climate change and hence there's growing residual risks associated with climate change. So so even though we're adapting, we're not adapting fast enough, so we're still suffering the consequences. Before I go to, to offer and just to pick up on that last point about not moving fast enough, um, you were involved with the COP26 gathering last year in, in Glasgow. Looking back from a few mo- uh, from the perspective of a few months now, how effective was that meeting in pushing governments and business to take action? 
Look, I, I think uh, Glasgow, even though it's got some bad press and people saying it was ineffective, I, I actually think it was a pretty extraordinary meeting uh, given the circumstances. Now, obviously, there was the commitments to increased emission reductions, and that's really positive, both from governments uh, and from business, particularly buying into that. The, the challenge, of course, is implementing those emission reductions. And, and what we're not seeing in the global uh, carbon dioxide emissions record is that reduction in emissions that we're, we've been promised under the Paris Agreement and, and at subsequent meetings. We also saw, I think, some really important steps forward, though, in terms of what we call the Paris Rulebook, which is essentially the rules in which governments operate to implement the Paris Agreement, so the emission reductions, and in particular the uh, development of the global carbon market, so the, the rules in which in that operates and the way in which it can at least attempt to safeguard some of the social and environmental bads that could happen of a, an unregulated market. There were various other things which are really important there. Um, uh, unfortunately, one of those wasn't a lot of progress on what's called the loss and damage agenda, which is where countries, particularly developing countries, are suffering significantly from climate change and they're looking at some way of getting compensated for that damage they're experiencing. And then there was the side events or the additional uh, announcement made at Glasgow, and, and there were several of those. Uh, one of the big ones was a, a global agreement on forest management and, and land use and agriculture management, uh, which had about 140 signatories, which takes that whole issue forward significantly. And there was various others, but one of the really interesting one was uh, essentially an agreement towards green shipping. So uh, making the shipping across the globe, moving into a much more green, sustainable mode, uh, which includes uh, setting up port facilities which actually have green fuels, whether it's ammonia or hydrogen, uh, so so that they uh, the ships, the big ships, when they dock, can actually refill with uh, renewable-based uh, fuels, and so. So I think that, that was actually one of the really interesting things. And the last one I'll mention, which I think is really important, is there was the announcement of the uh, International Sustainability Standards Board, which is essentially the same sort of uh, institution as applies to accountancy. So globally, we've got this whole set of accountancy rules and uh, which actually regulate how we operate our systems. And uh, And so increasingly, what we're likely to see is uh, sustainability and environment issues being dealt with in the same rigorous way that we deal with our balance sheets for our companies and our businesses. And so um, I actually think that's probably one of the more profound changes that happened at Glasgow. So is that sort of a way of, of really bringing environmental uh, considerations into the business model for every every company in the way we start to view the economy more generally? Indeed, at a company level, but also at a national level. So at the moment, we count things like GDP, uh, which can include both good things and bad things. Uh, but by applying appropriate uh, sustainability counting standards, we actually count the bad things against the good things rather than adding them together. And so um, so I think that's a, a really big step forward where we, when we say looking at uh, national progress or a particular um, sort of business proposition, you know, so, you know, starting up a new mine or something, uh, we have uh, agreed um, methods of assessing the desirability of that from an environmental point of view. Right. Now, Offer, uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came to be working with SPREC. Um, thank you. Um, I am Tongan. Uh, I am a lawyer by profession. I've, uh, I've um, graduated from the Australian National University in 2015 with a uh, master's in environmental law. 
Um, and so it was, I was really fortunate to be uh, under an OSE scholarship uh, to study at the um, ANU uh, School of Law. Um, like I said, uh, I'm and I've been here for about uh, five years working for the Secretariat and now manager of the Pacific Climate Change Center. I've started off with being a project officer for um, the German uh, International Corporation uh, based at SBC and then moved to government in Tonga where I was working as the uh, senior uh, advisor for uh, climate change and actually um, working under a Australian funded uh, project which was funded under the International Climate Adaptation Initiative or the ECAI uh, before I joined SPRAC in uh, 2017. And um, yeah, good to be back in, uh, I, I actually came to SPREP as a uh, legal advisor for uh, the Nagoya Protocol on access and benefit sharing. And now I'm back in uh, climate change where I started off. So thank you. Now, SPREP is the Pacific's main regional environmental agency, uh, and it was conceived before climate change became such a big issue. So uh, do you see SPREP having evolved significantly from its origins to reflect this new priority of climate change? Uh, absolutely. Uh, SPREP is the coordinator of uh, environmental uh, issues and programs in the Pacific. Uh, they are the lead in climate change um, program. Um, they are also the host of the Pacific Climate Change Center, which is now just being two years old into uh, operation. Uh, and so I think with the Pacific Climate Change Center, uh, uh, came into being, uh, which was funded through the government of Samoa and the government of Japan. Uh, it is a big deal, uh, you know, for the Pacific and especially for the work of SPREP, having to having uh, having to to uh, operate a, a Pacific center of excellence for climate information, for knowledge brokerage, for capacity building, and for innovation. Okay, could you tell us some of the environmental priorities at SPREP? And, and whether you think, is there a perception that everything is now connected to climate change when it comes to the environment? I, I think so. And I agree that um, SPREP works across uh, different thematic areas in the context of, envi of environment. Um, having said that, SPREP is uh, focusing on waste management, uh, environmental governance, uh, climate change, and also island and ocean ecosystem. Uh, for the Pacific Climate Change Center, we've now moved further into implementing what we were actually uh, uh, established to deliver for our Pacific, which is uh, applied research. Now we are touching on research, uh, knowledge brokerage, as I mentioned, training and learning, and of course, um, innovation. So for the center as part of SPREP, we offer training and courses. Uh, we partner with uh, research institutions uh, the likes of ANU and of course um, other institutions. Uh, we design and deliver training courses and of course we now look into fostering innovation and promote the development of new climate services and products. And offer what's your take on the latest IPCC report? Was there anything in there in particular that stood out for you? I think it's the agency. Uh, the message is clear. Um, I think it has been mentioned over and over again, um, that the more we know, the worse it looks. And for our Pacific, we are feeling the impacts, we are facing it every day, we live with it every day. The IPCC report is a great deal and is also a great tool for our Pacific um, uh, governments 
we need to design policies that reflects on the uh, what we are facing, but also reported through the IPCC. And so from your perspective, uh, Offa, what, what are some of the tools and, and policy guidelines that we can learn from this latest report that can help Pacific governments? Um, for the Pacific, we have the national adaptation plans. Uh, we also, um, you know, there's also the development of the uh, climate projections, uh, which have been developed accordingly to reflect and to help us build our resilience in climate change. And Mark, from your perspective, uh, what do you see as being some of the key tools available to Pacific governments and, and policy ideas that are coming out of this latest report? Uh, look, I, I think one of the things that uh, Offa mentioned was uh, urgency, and that is a clear message coming out of the report. And and that's it's urgent not just in terms of greenhouse gas emission reduction, which is, it certainly is urgent, uh, but also in terms of adaptation. So it's the responses to the changing climate. Now, when it comes to adaptation, it's a very a, a very contextual issue. So um, one Pacific nation will have a different adaptation approach than a, than a different one because, for example, a low-lying island versus a more mountainous island will have quite a different uh, set of adaptation responses. But when we look right across the Pacific, there's, there's a few things which obviously stand out. And uh, one is that, uh, that we can look at technical adaptations of existing systems so it's how do we how do we maintain the existing systems and that's a very important thing to do so so it's uh, you know how do we uh, tweak our farming systems so that we can continue to grow the staple crops that have traditionally been grown uh, how do we manage uh, our existing water systems and sanitation systems to to deal with increased flood uh, risk and, and increased uh, variability and in, in, uh, in climate, uh, you know, how do we improve our uh, weather forecasting systems and cyclone forecasts so that we can we can respond you know, more effectively in, in time? So all of those things are good. Um, uh, but in addition to that sort of tweaking existing systems, we, we need to look at sort of outside of the box, so more transformational options. So so given the changes, what are some quite different things that we might do? So, so different types of land use, uh, thinking differently about how we uh, use our uh, assets that each island has and and so so we need to um, sort of build the capacity to look at those more transformational options because often they're more challenging to do they're more risky and more costly and more complex and so there's a capacity building element um, there that has to be built in country like you, you can't import that it has to be aligned with the values of the people in the country um, who are implementing this and and so part of that capacity building is that institutional uh, capacity, which, uh, um, for example, SPREP is an example of, of the institutional building uh, that's happened in the, in the Pacific. And so that's really important because uh, um, simple technical responses by themselves aren't enough. We have to have the policy framework, um, uh, the policy implementation uh, that, that helps. Uh, we have to have people who can engage in the international community to ensure that Pacific interests are, are taken into account and so so we need that capacity building in many different ways and so so for me um, that adaptation response uh, which often people tend to focus you know down into the systems actually has to be right through the systems across the Pacific and and to some extent there's that element of uh, each Pacific nation speaking uh, with their voice, um, but also each um, speaking collectively with a Pacific voice uh, because all Pacific Island nations are going to be seriously impacted by climate change uh, and that's increasingly evident. So it's a case of sort of national governments really 
looking at their own specific countries and how they can adapt, but also amplifying the voice through major regional bodies like SPREP, like the Pacific Island Forum, etc., which seem to do quite well at these big international uh, events like COP26. I think the Pacific was able to get its voice cutting through there in a way it, it may not have in previous years. So yes, there were some, some, uh, some advantages from that last one. Um, Offer just coming to you, what do you see as being the most pressing sort of need, if you like, for Pacific communities, governments, from a regional perspective? What, what, what are some of the key things uh, from your perspective need to happen now? Yeah, I think for me would be implementing what's in the report. Uh, uh, with the IPCC report, it's an authentic report. Um, it's been reviewed uh, in different stages. And uh, I think it's a great deal for the Pacific and a tool that we need to use. What we need to do now is action. Um, put all these into uh, policies, as mentioned by Mark, trans transformational policies, where we can use to actually um, address the, the impacts of, of climate change. And of course, one of the things that we need is to be um, smart in how we um, amplify our voice at you know the, the at the um, uh, international arena for COP26, uh, it was because of COVID-19 that we didn't really uh, send uh, the amount of, of delegates that we wanted to um, to be present at COP26. But for COP27, I think with the report, we need to amplify our voice more so that it is heard at those international arena where the decision is going to be made. And do you sense at a sort of national level that governments are moving more towards a whole of government response? How, how optimistic are you that each country in the Pacific is, is grappling with this with, with a whole of government approach to climate change? I'm very optimistic uh, that government is really doing their part uh, to amplify our voice. Uh, back in the 90s coming up, there has been consistent calling for um, uh, you know, to uh, consistently uh, we called that there is need to be an action on climate change because we are facing the biggest threat uh, to our region, to our Pacific region. And then there is also potential, uh, you know, there's, there's more to come. Um, the worst impacts are yet to come. And we are facing some of it, but there's more to come. And so I think uh, uh, we need to amplify our voice more. We need to have transformational policies that address that we need to do something, not just at the government level, regional level, and also international level. You mentioned the idea of transformational policies there. Do you have any in mind? Are there a couple that you think, you know, governments and regional organizations like SPREP can really focus on to make a difference? I think to, uh, I'll just speak for the center. What we really move into is to um, in the area of innovation. Um, the innovation part of uh, uh, climate change needs to come through uh, very quickly for the Pacific. But having said that, uh, we need to also consider the resources and the capacity that we have uh, here, both at the regional level and also at the national level. But yeah, to answer your question, I'm very optimistic, but also I'm looking more into having some innovative kind of products that could help us build our resilience uh, to climate change. I'm really interested in, in, you know, the evolution of green tech and what's sort of being researched and looked at to sort of assist in this area. 
Do you have any ideas or is Sprep looking at any particular products? If, if, we, if we're going to get really practical here, what are some of the, the kind of green tech uh, innovations that, that might make a difference? We were introduced to, uh, uh, I had a discussion with uh, one of the universities in Australia, I think it's the University of Newcastle, about the solar panel where you can put it out when it's sunny and you can take it in if there's a cyclone. Um, those are the kind of innovative uh, uh, technology that we may uh, want to introduce to our, to our Pacific. And that's just one. And there's more, uh, I think the climate change models that have been uh, uh, developed uh, in uh, partnership with the CSIRO. Uh, also, some of the kind of innovative tools that we need to look into um, and, and utilize for building resilience in the Pacific. As we know, the, the Pacific spends a lot of money on imported diesel and, and fossil fuels, so one of the adva- and batteries. So, one of the advantages of, of adapting to climate change through green tech like better solar panels is you're also solving a major economic issue for these countries because uh, some of them are spending 20 or 30% of their annual revenue just on on fuel importation. So it can make a big difference to the economy. Um, The other thing is, Mark, you know, as director of of ICEDS, part of that component is energy. So is ICEDS also involved at at looking at some of this technology to, to have you know, better green tech solutions for the Pacific? Yeah, we've certainly got uh, some proposals, uh, you know, ready to go, um, but but they haven't quite got over the line yet. Uh, but uh, but in particular, uh, we, we actually see there's some great possibilities of, of rolling out um, the renewables. But really importantly, it's not about, often people focus on the technology, you know, the panels and the batteries and the wind turbines. But the really important part is the system. So it's actually how you use that energy and and the social and cultural elements that sit under that. So, so for example, if you've got um, uh, a system which uh, where you have say people on dialysis machines, is that um, you need absolutely stable um, electricity for those people, those users, because if you have an interruption during a dialysis, it's actually really serious. And so, so what you can actually do is set up a system which has different priorities um, according to different social needs. And so, so what we could do is actually set up a, a completely new generation of power systems, which actually, instead of people fitting in with the electricity providers, the electricity provision actually fits in with the people. And I think that would be a really great example of how we can innovate in the Pacific. Great. Now, out of this latest IPCC report offer, um, there's talk about nature-based solutions as well. We've touched on some of the technical possibilities that might come with green tech, but obviously there's a need to focus also on nature-based solutions. What, what in your mind, could they entail? Um, yeah, that would be um, um, really uh, uh, applicable to the Pacific, having some nature-based uh, um, solutions in, in place. Um, right now, we have a uh, we have projects that are touched on uh, uh, nature-based uh, solutions. We also work with countries to um, establish their protected areas. Uh, there's also we are now working on a uh, uh, a um, sorry we are now working on a concept uh, to the Kiwi Initiative on traditional knowledge bringing that uh, uh, nature-based adaptation uh, uh, solutions into that 
So I think it, uh, it is something that we have been implementing uh, as part of our work uh, to, to our countries. I'm glad you picked up on traditional knowledge because that's uh, my next question to you offer. Um, on previous podcasts here, we've had Dr. George Carter and climate scientist Morgan Wairu give a Pacific perspective on the science, on the diplomacy, and how Pacific communities are adapting. Um, from your perspective, how can Pacific culture and traditional knowledge help to build that resilience and adapta adaptation that's required? I mean, um, you know, we've lived in the Pacific. Uh, we know the impacts, but we're still here. Um, you know, back in the days uh, when there's uh, not a lot of scientific information coming through or provided to our communities, we live based on what we know uh, in, in our practices and our traditional practices. Um, I know that, that uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lot, there's a lot of discussion needs to, um, to happen with um, integrating traditional knowledge into the science. What I'm saying here, I mean, uh, speaking in a, as a Pacific uh, uh, woman and an islander, um, it is a great deal for us. The traditional knowledge is something that uh, uh, we have been using um, to live through uh, the impacts of climate change. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, for, for us in the Pacific, in the absence of um, scientific information, we rely on our knowledge to address uh, what we see every day as the impacts of climate change. Mark, now climate modelling is a very complex process uh, with many variables and points of data to include. Do you have a sense that the modelling is getting much better, you know, over time? And I'm interested whether artificial intelligence is also playing a role in, in trying to crunch, you know, massive reams of data to, to have more effective models. Uh, it's a really good question there so so the 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 models are still evolving so that these are the climate and ocean models the integrated models and uh, and so so they're this they're still um, you know significant improvements that that can be done and uh, and, and different elements of those models <coughs> uh, have different levels of, of certainty associated with them so so the models are pretty good with temperature particularly global temperature very good uh, Sort of uh, representation between observed versus predicted temperature changes. Um, as you go down the scales, down towards local scales, of course, there's more variability, and, and your your predictions uh, don't look quite as good. But uh, but nevertheless, temperature is reasonably well handled. Things that aren't so well handled are, are the um, El Nino Southern Oscillation System. So how that will evolve in the future. Everything points towards. Uh, some more strength in that, so that stronger El Ninos and stronger La Ninas uh, with climate change, and that will bring more climate variability to the Pacific, but but not very clear in terms of frequency. So how how you know will the frequency of those um, change? Uh, in terms of cyclones, um, significant uh, uncertainty I think still in terms of how cyclones will evolve. Uh, but what we're seeing already is is an increased uh, frequency or proportion of Category 3, 4 and 5 cyclones of those that occur, including in the Pacific. And so um, so what we're already observing is an increased cyclone risk, not because of the number of cyclones, but because of the strength of cyclones. So, so that would be a good indicator of future change. Uh, and the other really important one, of course, is rainfall. And and so some models are less good at rainfall um, in terms of uh, how that will 
um, evolve in different parts of the Pacific because it depends on how the what's called the intertropical convergence zone changes in terms of its location and shape and size. Uh, and so, so some islands groups, depending on uh, whether they're inside or outside that boundary of change, uh, could have very different uh, rainfall projections in the future. So, so there's uncertainty there. The, the, the critical thing you ask about um, artificial intelligence, um, I, I often like the idea of real intelligence. Um, and, and, and for me, real intelligence is, in this case, about how do you use the information well? So, so, so it's more about wisdom, indeed. And so, rather than sort of focusing on the hardware and the and the the tech, which is important, um, it, the question for me is, how do we really sensibly use this information, um, and how do we integrate that within broader uh, sustainable development trajectories that we may, may want to undertake? And so, for me. Um, uh, we really, and that comes back to that capacity building thing. So, how how do you actually build the capacity so you you can integrate that high tech information with the traditional knowledge that people have and developed over many you know hundreds and thousands of years? So, um, so for me, the 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 challenge ahead of us is how do we get smarter as a set of societies um, in in terms of not getting fixated on one thing or another, but actually figuring out what our goals are and what our values are and how we can progress together towards those. Offer, do you have uh, anything to sort of say on, on that point and the role that we've talked about traditional knowledge but also sort of wisdom and, and how you use the science, how you use uh, policy making for better outcomes using that traditional knowledge and wisdom? Okay, um, thank you. Um, yes, uh, like I said, uh, traditional knowledge has been part of our culture for many years, and we've lived, uh, uh, you know, using those uh, traditional uh, knowledge um, to address what we are facing right now. Um, I, I think I, I will agree with Mark uh, with, you know, the science and traditional knowledge merging. Uh, we have a project here, uh, which is um, funded uh, through um, I think the EU, but also um, DFED, and they're, work, they're looking into um, traditional knowledge in the context of uh, meteorology. And so what they are trying to do, they're trying to document all the uh, traditional knowledge related to, you know, um, observing the weather pattern. Um, they, 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 they work to um, document that and then try and see whether they, the science can be informed by the traditional knowledge um, that we have. And, um, and, and for the Pacific, I think there are traditional knowledge that needs to be documented so that we can see how it informs the science and vice versa. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, uh, most of the traditional knowledge are not documented, that they, that they are not put together in a database where you know, we can uh, try and see and probably, um, uh, you know, capacity, in terms of capacity building, we can actually look into those documented knowledge and probably develop some courses that will then inform the science and, you know, and, 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 and the connection. Uh, but unfortunately, that is a challenge for the Pacific. Uh, we have rich traditional knowledge, but are often undocumented. Mark, do uh, Pacific governments need to think more about where they place essential infrastructure? So I think um, what we need to do is be very um, you know, thoughtful about where we put our infrastructure and how we build infrastructure. So um, uh, 
you know, how do we deal with legacy infrastructure and how do we ensure that anything we built new is actually suited for the next decades to come? And one of those issues that, that's raised in the IPCC report is uh, concerns about, for example, a lot of health facilities are located uh, near coasts. Um, and so so they're subject to sea level rise, of course. Uh, they're subject to you know intense damage from cyclones and similar things. And of course, those uh, you know health issues are part of the the climate change picture, so likely to see significant increased potential risk associated with a lot of health issues. And so we need those facilities, um, but particularly uh, during and after extreme events, that's when you particularly need those facilities. So they're, if they're in vulnerable locations, uh, you get a double whammy um, f from from any particular event. And so, so we need to be very thoughtful about where we put our infrastructure and how we build it in the future. Mm. And that brings us to sort of ideas of climate financing and insurance, loss and damage. Uh, Offer, you've got a legal background. Is there anything you can sort of share with us around legal processes that SPREP or the Pacific as a region might be pursuing in order to, to get better outcomes around insurance, loss and damage, et cetera, et cetera, following on from COP26? Um, for the uh, the processes, um, uh, maybe it's too early for me to um, comment on that, but I know there's been a, a work uh, undertaken uh, from the Pacific uh, in terms of you know the processes uh, to amplify our voice in the context of loss and damage. Um, what we have done uh, with COP26 is that we nominated uh, climate uh, champions, uh, and they are the uh, political climate champions. Uh, to COP26, uh, and I'm aware that the Minister of Tuwali was the champion for loss and damage. Um, we had the BCITS meeting uh, last week uh, as the COP26 BCITS meeting, and some of the issues that uh, that floated from uh, the discussion was um, there was a need uh, for the Pacific to, um, to put stronger uh, positions papers uh, to on, on this on this issue of loss and damage, but that's just I think that's just my um, my comment for now. Uh, we are still working on it. Uh, we have appointed um, climate champions uh, to champion loss and damage, which is the uh, government of Tuvalu. So for COP26, uh, we're looking more into working uh, with them to create um, uh, positions that are stronger, so we can go with it to uh, COP27. Offer, we're going to wrap up the discussion. Was there anything else uh, you wanted to add? And perhaps one thing might be to flag any specific programs that SPREP is focused on or events in the year ahead. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for having me again, Mark uh, and, and Ben. Um, I wanted to, to uh, pop in here and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, to say that we have the capacity building uh, uh, a component of the Pacific Climate Change Center. And one of the um, webinar series that we've been uh, conducting uh, in partnership with the Australian National University is the webinar on um, the IPCC uh, report. And this is the second time we have engaged to deliver that to our uh, countries. I see a lot of uh, uh, engagement through um, hosting the, part, uh, uh, the IPCC uh, webinar in partnership with ANU. Last time we had the um, webinar, we've seen more than 300 participants uh, from around the Pacific uh, and beyond uh, with the institutions. 
So the next one, uh, the next webinar that we'll be hosting uh, in partnership with ANU is um, on the 10th of March uh, uh, this year. And so I'm looking forward to um, hosting that uh, in partnership with ANU, but also um, I can now already see there's a lot of um, interest coming through uh, to the center in terms of they want more detail on the uh, upcoming report, which is something that is still in discussion, but we look forward to um, hosting uh, that uh, webinar as part of our capacity building uh, uh, function of the centre. Okay, thanks, Alpha. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my two guests, Professor Mark Howden from ISEDS at the Australian National University and Alpha Maasi Kasaimi from the Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environmental Program known as SPREP in Samoa. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, and our Facebook page for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohane. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.